From the beginning, we have been saying that the purpose of Revelation is not just to inform you, but to change you. That if this is true, if all these things are going to happen, how should that affect my life now? It's going to change your view of Jesus. Today will change your view of Jesus. If you have a, uh, just a Solomon Paintings view of Jesus today, that will change. Again, this is probably not a picture you'll hang in your nursery uh, for your children, but it is true of who Jesus is. We've asked every, every week, are you going to be ready ready? Or are you going to be raptured and removed? Because the answer to that question will determine how you will prepare. If you think you're going to have to go through this, or your kids, your grandkids, you're going to prepare them differently. If you think you're going to have a front row seat and watch, then you'll prepare differently that way. And no matter how bad the world gets, and no matter how chaotic it is tomorrow, God still wins. Matter of fact, you take the whole Bible, wrap it up in that line, God wins, Right? He wins in the end, and there's comfort in knowing the end of the story. doesn't take away what you're going to have to go through, the difficulties that you're going to face, but God wins in the end. We said that the day of the Lord is going to be the most glorious time and the most horrifying time, and today that will be very true in the his human history. We've talked about the divine paradox that from the beginning God is saving people from his own wrath. But now that window has been shut, and we'll see that window shut today as mankind comes to an end. We talked about victory of the chosen, the call of the faithful. We talked about the God being the ultimate avenger. And today, really the main point of this chapter is this. This is the last chapter of humanity's wretched history and the first chapter of Jesus' glorious return. Now, Wretched is a powerful word. There's other words I could have used there. And Tim, I mean, especially if you've never been to Horizon and you're just checking this out, man, you think humanity's wretched? Yes. It's not that they haven't done great things. It's not that we haven't accomplished many things. But when you take what mankind has done over time, I mean, man, we were able to get a vaccine out at record time. Yeah, in that same year... The world killed 42.6 million babies were aborted. It's the leading cause of death in the world, abortion. 42.6 million last year. So guys, wretched is a good word, okay, for humanity. And humanity, as we know it in chapter 19, is having its last day and entrance into Jesus and his new kingdom. Now, if you know me, and if you've been here at any time, uh, you will know that I love movies. I reference movies. I'm going to reference some movies right now. I love movies, I, and especially if they're good. If I've seen a movie that's good, I will tell my friend, you got to see this. It's really good. It's on this, it's on this, and on this. I love movies. I love, I mean, I told Mike of a movie I watched, but just from the cinematography, it is so cool how this was set up and how they did this. I enjoy it, and then I'll watch it again, and sometimes I'll watch it, not the main character, I'll look behind the main characters, you know. Watch Braveheart, the first fighting scene, because as, as Braveheart is sitting there with his sword, and it's all, you got guys in the back, they're still fighting, but they're fighting like this. No one said cut, okay. It's kind of funny when you begin to look at stuff beyond that. But what drives me absolutely crazy in movies is when there's, it's not all tied up neat at the end of the movie. 
Loose ends. I hate loose ends of a movie. All right? It just drives me crazy. Nobody likes loose ends. And the first movie that I could probably recall watching as a child that had loose ends was the movie Pinocchio. I want to be a real boy. Because in the movie Pinocchio, you have this, you know, this puppet who wants to be a real boy, and he gets out there, and he gets taken by this demonic stagecoach guy that brings him to a, this town for boys where they can drink beer and smoke cigars and destruct things, which, I don't know, that doesn't, anyways, I'll leave that. Destroy things, but then they turn into donkeys, and then he sells them. I mean, you, I don't think you can make that movie today, Okay? But then he escapes, gets home, no longer a donkey anymore, and turns into a real boy and lives happily ever after. Hey, Disney, what about the town? Where's the sequel where Pinocchio takes police to arrest a stagecoach guy who's kidnapping kids? I mean, it's just loose ends. Come on, tie this up. Nobody likes loose ends. That's why... Star Wars. I'm sure many of you have seen Star Wars. And the second one, The Empire Strikes Back, I sat out in front of the theater with my friend Bob Lehman for six, seven hours to get tickets. And even in that movie, which was a great flick, and if you haven't seen it, you've had plenty of time, okay? I'm not going to ruin anything, but it ends with you know, Han Solo. He's being t- carted off in a metal coffin to Jabba the Hutt. Luke Skywalker leaves his Jedi training with Yoda and Darth Vader. Luke, I am your father. And then it ends! But you knew another one was coming back, right? And another one, and another one, and another one. And it just hasn't ended. Nobody likes loose ends. We want it all tied up, but I'm telling you, God doesn't allow he finishes the story and ties it up and if we ended at chapter 18 with the destruction of Babylon that'd be one thing but that's not where it ends chapter 19 is really the end of humanity it's the end of humanity's wretched history and the beginning of Jesus' glorious return so turn on Revelation 19 in verse 1 chapter 18 Babylon has been destroyed and there is what you would think would happen, celebration. That's where verse 1 comes in. 19 verse 1 says, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven, shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute. Some of your translations might say great whore. I like that translation better. Uh, Who corrupted the earth of her adulteries. He's avenged on her the blood of the servants, his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Hallelujah simply means God be praised. And what's interesting here is that Hallelujah appears four times just in this little section, and it's the only time it appears in the entire New Testament. Actually, if you took a concordance, looked up the word Hallelujah, it's the only time it appears in the whole Bible. In the Psalms, he refers to a Hebrew word that's like hallelujah, but it's not trans- it's translated something else. So this is the only place in the entire Bible you're going to find hallelujah. And that's where the great hallelujah chorus comes from. Handel's Messiah is coming from this, the hallelujah, the hallelujah. It means praise unto God. And so this great celebration because the great whore has been destroyed 
And it, and it makes a statement here of the that salvation, glory, and power. And what's interesting in the Greek language, they put in the Greek, they didn't do this here because it's technically not how we talk, but it's the salvation and the glory and the power emphasizing each one unto itself. And that's why we're bringing praise to God. We're bringing praise to God because the great prostitute has finally been. Everything that God said would happen has come about. And in verse 4, a a worship service breaks out. The 24 elders and the four living creatures, in verse 4, fell down and worshiped God who was seated on his throne. That's why, guys, we just got done singing, crown him with many crowns. This is all going to come through this. And they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, which again technically is hallelujah, all you his servants for who fear him, both small and great. And so this worship service, and guys, I'm going to keep telling you, the worship that happens here on Sunday morning is preparing you for what you're going to be doing in heaven a lot. Then I heard what sounded like, verse 6, a great multitude. It was like roaring of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb. Now, they're praising God. They're giving worship to God because his promises are true. Babylon has been destroyed. But they're also praising God because now the wedding feast, the wedding banquet for the Lamb can begin. The, word, the term Lamb for Jesus is used 28 times of just describing Jesus. I think he doesn't want us to forget that. That he is the lamb, he is the redeemer, he is the sacrifice. And it talks about the wedding of the lamb. Now, we do weddings differently than when Jesus spoke about when John is writing here. Weddings are totally different. I mean, I know that, let's say, today's Valentine's Day, and I went back on a calendar and realized that, okay, when Gwen and I, we talked after Valentine's Day, and then she came down to Fresno on February 18th, 1984, where we had our first kiss, and then I proposed her on May 25th, 1984, and then married her on November 10th, 1984. It's not fast. When you have something good, you go for it. None of these years of things, get, get it done. Get it all, what, what's this? Yeah, we're getting married in four years from now. No! Plus, I didn't want her to have a chance to say, what am I doing? You know, if you do it fast enough, you just keep going, you know. But Jewish weddings were different. There were three stages in a Jewish wedding. I mean, there was the betrothal stage, there was the bridegroom returns, and then the banquet. This stage right here, this was arranged marriages, men who have girls. They arranged marriages at two or three. Anyone? I, I, I think we need to go back to some tradition here. And, and not only did you arrange the wedding, money was exchanged. I mean, cows, cattle, sheep. I mean, let, let's, make it, let's make something happen here. And it was done when they were two or three years old. And so you have to understand, they got married when they were like 12 to 15 years old. And what would happen in this stage is that it would all be arranged, and then this young man would go away for, take a year to build a room onto his parents' house because they're 12 and 15 years old. That's where they would stay. But technically, by the law, they were married. That's why you remember the whole Jewish, uh, when we talk about Jesus and Mary story. 
They hadn't been married yet technically, but they were married because they were betrothed. Then the bridegroom comes, returns, and takes the bride away from the parents. And then there's a big party. There's a big banquet that takes place. Now what's interesting with this is this falls right into the same thing of what Jesus did for us. That's why it's called a wedding. The betrothal took place because he purchased you with his blood. A price was paid for you to be his bride. And he's going to return. And that's what we're talking about now. He's going to return to take you home. And there is going to be one big party in heaven. Okay? We'll talk about that when we get into the later chapters here. But, I mean, that's when the, the old casks of ale will be broken open. And meat will be barbecued. No vegetables are mentioned. So you vegetarians, you better think about it now. No broccoli is over the spit, all right? It's talking about a huge banquet being the celebration. And so that's why it's called the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's this unfolding that is taking place. And that's why when you get to verse 7 when it says, And his bride has made herself ready. The fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear and it gives us what the fine linen was. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Now, I don't want us to miss this. It's kind of a two-part thing here because his bride has made herself ready. There's two parts to this. Guys, there's nothing I can do personally to make myself ready to be righteous enough for God. I cannot be holy enough. I mean, that's where, man, when I get my stuff together, then I'll be ready for God. You will never get if I just do enough good things, then God will accept me. Your good deeds to God are like filthy rags. All right? Now, you can't do anything to earn the salvation. He's offered that. It is free. I can accept it, but at the same time, I'm responsible for as a bride to make myself ready for his return. Now, you let Scripture interpret Scripture here because it says, verse 8, fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear and it tells us what it is. The fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. This thought hit me this morning when I was out in my poker room getting ready going, there's going to be a lot of naked brides up in heaven. Now think about that for a minute. Because you're dressed with the righteous deeds you have done. Now, you're a bride... But how you're dressed, how you're wardrobed out is based upon what you've done with your time, talents, and, and money and everything that gifts that he has given you. That's why Judgment Day is not for our sin. Our Judgment Day for Christians is what we did with what he gave us. The righteous acts. And there are those, not here, not you and Lodi, it's usually the second service here, that may just say, I got Jesus, I said yes, and have done nothing. That's why 1 Corinthians 3 talks about that day of judgment. They will have lost everything when fire comes down to test the quality of each man's work, each woman's work. Some will have nothing to show other than the foundation of Christ that they were here. Here's another illustration of that, guys. There's going to be some naked brides in heaven because they'll have nothing to clothe themselves with because they've just been banking on. I said that prayer, and I'm in. I need not do 
we've had a bride in our house. I know some of you men who have had, Devin, you've had, you, you got three, you got one to go still. I mean, you, what a father goes through other than just writing the checks, you know. I mean, you just don't get married like in my parents' day, they just went down to the courthouse and then they had a little party and cake at the house afterwards. That's not what happens today. I mean, it seems like COVID is kind of tentative down there, but how much money and how much time and everything. Brides just don't say yes and then show up that day and they're married anymore. They do a lot of stuff. Have you made yourself ready? Because that which we do, not because, oh, I want a beautiful dress, so I better get my act in here and do things. Then your attitude's wrong. This is about how can I not? The grooms ask me. I get, to, I get to be married to him. I get to be have a relationship with him. I will do whatever to show my love for that. Some of us just might be butt naked in heaven. That's not the Bible anymore. Revelation 19, 9 says this. Then the angel said to me, Right blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At that I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers hold, who hold to the testimony of Jesus. I wish I could go take time to go into that. Understand. Those who have held on. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. God is the only one that deserves the worship. And then John looks up and he sees in verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. I saw standing, here's Jesus. We don't have the name Jesus here. We don't even have to assume because it says whose writer is called faithful and true earlier on in Revelation. That's what Jesus' name was given, faithful and true. Writer on a white horse. Uh, this is, again, if you were in Roman days, a, a conquering general would ride a white horse through the city of Rome proclaiming. And the white was his purity and his holy character that it was it resembled. And so Jesus coming down on a white horse, and which I'm going to just tell you, there are horses in heaven. Some of you are animals in heaven? Well, I know there are horses, and I know there are dogs. There are no cats. Uh, <laughs> Third Timothy chapter 3 says no cats, cats allowed, okay? Some guys has to guard hell. So um, that's not true. That's, that's Kevin at horizonweb.org, you cat lovers. Whose name is faithful and true. We talked about that before because all of God's promises are faithful and true. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken for us to, glory, to, to the glory of God. Titus 1.2. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning. And so here's Jesus riding on the white horse. Verse 12 says his eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. Crown him with many crowns. His name was written on him that no one knows. His eyes were aflame. That means he misses nothing. Nothing escapes his sight. 
the many crowns. Crowns, and the first time we saw a crown was when the first rider of the four horsemen came out. He had a crown, but the word there in Greek is Stephanos, which means a kind of a, just a, a laurel, a, you know, green leaves that were placed on a winner of a race. This is diadems, and many meaning he is the ultimate ruler, the true king of kings. And what's interesting is that you have Jesus riding on a white horse. The first time he came riding on an animal was a donkey, right? Then, then you have in Jerusalem, when he saw Jerusalem, his eyes were filled with tears, but now they're filled with flames. He wore a crown of thorns, but now he has the crown. And Jesus' blood was on his enemies. But as we'll see here, the enemy's blood was on Jesus. It says here that he has a name that no one knows. Which, why, why, why would you bother to mention that? Jesus has a name that, hey, there's a name, but you can't know what it is. Why would he say that? Other than, one, to say, because he and the Father have a special relationship, there is a name that they only share and you will never know. But if you remember Revelation 2, this is what is said of us, is that we have a name. Verse 17, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on known only to him who received it, that you get a new name in heaven that only you and Jesus know. Again, it's talking about the death of the relationship. I mean, nicknames are, I mean, some nicknames are cool. I mean, I, you know, but, you know, usually in relationships, you know, we use names back and forth of just showing the significance of who that person is. Now it says in verse 13 that he, was, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Now the question is, whose blood? And I've been saying for years, and I stand corrected today, that I probably said it a couple of weeks ago, that you know, Jesus' blood, robe is dipped in the blood of the saints, and that's not true. Some say that it's Christ's blood, it's Jesus' own blood that is dipped in but we really see no scripture to support that. But Isaiah 63, 1 through 6 says this. Who is this coming from Edom and Basra? This is talking about the future. It's a prophecy about Christ, prophecy about this moment in time. With his garment stained crimson. Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, this is God responding then the question, why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? Remember, we've talked about winepress throughout the book of Revelation. The answer is, I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger, anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of the vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption has come. I trampled the nations in my anger and the wrath. I made them drunk and poured out their blood to the ground. The blood that his robe is dipped in is the blood of his enemies. Now, 
what? The blood of his enemies. But he's coming down to fight. So where did the blood come from? Guys, this is not Jesus' first battle. Jesus has been fighting for you since time began. Deuteronomy 20, verse 4, For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Joshua 23, 10. One of you routs a thousands. How can one person rout a thousand people? Because the Lord your God fights for you, just as I promised. We just got done singing Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against you? And I guarantee there are some of you who are sitting there, you know, he is for you, he is for you. How many times do we have to sing, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you, he is for you? Because most of us don't believe that. I mean, we're easy to go in when things get rough and difficult that where are you, God? Which David writes many times. Where are you? Why? <laughs> I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And that's why we need songs he's for. Hey, guys, he's for you. He's for you. He's been fighting for you. His blood, his robe has been dipped in the blood of his enemies, your enemies. And he's been fighting since day one for you. That should raise a hallelujah right there. Verse 13 says that he is dressed in the robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. John 1 1 uses that same phraseology in his gospel that he wrote. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The term, the Word of God, is such a powerful thing both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It, it speaks of that, yes, it's God's actual Word, but it speaks that when God's actual Word is spoken, His presence is there too. His very presence. So it's both. It's a manifestation of God's revelation of what he has to say, but it's a manifestation of God himself. That's why Emmanuel, God with us. Revelation verse 14 says, The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, the armies, well, that's pretty simple who the armies are. The armies are... Man, you got the angels, you've got the Old Testament saints, you've got the church, you've got the, the people who have died during the revelation, during the tribulation period. They're all riding. And there's no, they don't have a weapon on them. I think because most of you haven't ridden a horse, you need both hands on the rein. You can't be doing this. I mean, you're going to be good enough to stay on the horse, all right? And you don't need a weapon because Jesus has got the weapon. He's the one riding with the weapon. As a matter of fact, he's the only one that does it. We're just riding behind him and just, can you, can you, you got to picture in your head how massive millions upon millions, maybe billions of horses. That's a lot of horses in heaven. Okay. Verse 15 says, out of, the, out of his mouth, this is the writer, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. I mean, throughout Scripture, the, the Word of God is talked about as, as a sword. Isaiah talks about it. Hebrews talks about it. That it's, 
It's, his word is sharper than a double-edged sword cutting through the, the, between bone and marrow. He says he will rule then with an iron scepter. And so there is a ruling. That's, that's the next couple chapters when it talks about the millennial reign. So he's coming not just to destroy the enemies that are before him. He's coming to set up his kingdom here on earth. And he treads the winepress of the fury. That's the winepress again of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus had a tattoo. So if you ever wanted any support, I don't believe in tattoos. They're evil. Well, then Jesus is evil because he has a tattoo right here on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's Kevin at HorizonWeb.org. Verse 17 says, And I saw an angel standing in the, in the sun who cried out in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, small and great. Everyone's included. There's going to be no burial which was the ultimate indignity to a king or a mighty warrior. The birds are going to eat your flesh. It's a gross picture because this is the end of wretched humanity. Guys, you have pushed this all the way, and we have to keep in our mind, because you get to this point, you're going, man, God is just vicious. God is wrathful. God is judgment. God is brings the justice, and he has given mankind. How many opportunities have we seen in Revelation? Repent, repent, and they knew it was God. No, repent, repent, no, 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 no. It's closed, and God has said enough. If that isn't bad, here comes something worse. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. So, guys, can you picture? I mean, you've got cannons and machine guns and rockets all pointed up at the creator of the universe to set it down on a white horse. The pride. The, I mean, just, we are going to destroy God. They're thoroughly convinced. But that's not what happened. Because it says here in verse 20, the beast is captured. Along with the false prophet, who had performed the miraculous signs on, behalf, on his behalf. With these signs, he deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Some of your translations will say lake. It's the first reference to hell that we have here in Revelation. Now, I know people don't like the concept of hell. They, why, why does there have to be a hell? So this lake of fire, this place, the first to go in are the beast and the false prophet. The next to go in is Satan himself. Then we'll see later that in Scripture where in Revelation it says that the death and Hades were cast in. And then all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
And that's the second death, where, according to scriptures, and there's a lot of references in your, bio, in your notes to look up, is the ultimate separation from God. Remember the paradox. God has done everything to try to save people from his wrath. But mankind has said, no. Doesn't matter how many warnings. Doesn't matter how many whatevers. No. And God says, I mean, we want to say, like C.S. Lewis says, that, you know, hell is basically God's response of saying you have your wish. You're eternally separated from and I've had people, I don't want to believe in God that's going to send people to hell. How horrible of God is that? Okay, first off, I will always say, guys, God is technically not sending people to hell. We're sending ourselves. It's all on our choices. It's all on our decisions. We choose. You say no, 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 fine. That's why when I read the obituaries, I, I do that daily. I, I, just, I, I, I don't want to miss if someone within our church connected family and all that but the vast majority of them speak nothing of faith when I go to to do a funeral usually the funeral director hands me a piece of paper with all the details of the family where they're born da 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 and I've always I got them for so long I finally said why do you hand this to me I never use it Why, why I mean it took a lot of time to type it out and everything well, Tim, you don't understand. Most people don't have a pastor, and a pastor just shows up that we hire, and that's all they know is what we hand them. How sad is that? I mean, I, I can't do funerals. I, I had a, a friend who lost a son asked me, just, just tell me he's in heaven. Just tell me he's okay. I didn't know your son. I, I can only pretty much do that for myself because <laughs> you could all be fooling me. You could all be here just for the donuts and the coffee, okay? I, I, I can only answer for myself. But there's going to come a time. Hell is real. Um, that's verse 21. The rest of them killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider and the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The last chapter has finally been written on humanity's wretched history. It's done. The only ones left are believers. 144,000. Gentile Jewish believers who survived all this are the only ones alive. We'll see that in the coming chapters. I want you to be encouraged from the standpoint that one, God is planning this huge banquet feast for the wedding. Again, I know how much planning goes into a wedding. Man, he's taking a long time to plan this one out. And it's going to be a feast and he no one to miss it. I want you to see his name is and always will be the final authority. 
Guys, it's around the name of Jesus. Since mankind began from the Tower of Babel, we're going to make a name for ourselves to throughout time. I'm going to worship this God. I'm going to choose Buddha, Muhammad, Krishna, myself, sex, drugs, whatever it may be. I'm going to choose that. I'm going to worship that, which is man's choice. God has given them the choice to do that. His name will always have the final. And ultimately, Jesus determines who stands and falls at the end. But that's not fair. Guys, God is just. That's why it says in Romans, no one will be able to stand before God and give an excuse of why they didn't hear. Man will be without excuse, it says, because he's made himself evident. Not that God is everything. He's made himself evident that he exists. You have chosen to say no. And like all choices, they have an ultimate reality. So how does that change us, this knowledge? I mean, it should be a sobering thought, guys, that there is going to come a day when all of humanity is gone. And the only ones left are those who believe in Jesus Christ. Well, that's pretty. You believe you're the right ones. Yes, I do. I'm, I will not apologize for that. You're, you're excluding other people. I'm not. He is. He wants everyone to come to Christ. He wants everyone to be saved. But those are those who will choose. question we've asked from the very beginning, will you be radiant and ready? As the bride, how are you preparing yourself? Because you're going to be dressed. You don't want to be up there butt naked. Well, I'm in heaven, so hey, I love, I'm, I'm cool with being naked. Not riding a horse you ain't. So, you know, I, okay, I don't know where that came from. That was a visual you probably didn't need. <laughs> but you choose how you're going to get dressed. Because the fine linen was the deeds of righteousness. And if you haven't listed in God's army, what are you waiting for? Because a day is coming when God will be done with mankind. Let me pray for us who are part of the, the who have been invited and accepted the invitation. And I want to give the opportunity for anyone here, anyone watching, that maybe today they'll enlist in the army of Christ. Father, for us who are here, and we're dressed, we're here, we're alive today, so you're not done with us yet. And you've made promise to us that we'll be part of this wedding feast, this celebration, but you tell us to be ready. You've made us ready because our sins have been forgiven. We stand in your righteousness. But we're also clothed with the righteous acts. Father, may we act as believers in Jesus Christ because we love you and for no other reason. That we'll take our time, our gifts, our talents that you've given us and use them to your glory. And what a wedding dress that will build. May we be ready.
And for those here who you don't know Jesus Christ, you've never made a decision for him. And we ask you to say a simple prayer. I, ch I pretty much have changed this prayer every week. So it's not the words. It's the decision that you're making in your heart. If that's your desire today before you leave this place. And let's all pray these words together, okay? God in heaven, you, you sent your son Jesus to save us from our sins. Let's do it all together. My sin has separated me from you. I believe that Jesus Christ died to take away my sin. Today, I ask you to forgive my sin and to come into my life. Please begin to direct my life. Make me a part of your army. I want to take part in the marriage feast. I receive you into my heart this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, there's a number out here on the screen. A guy's named Larry Sterling. I want you to text that number, 916-505-4958. And he'll give you some necessary tools that you need to how do I begin to make my wedding dress and make it for him. And so Larry will hook you up and set you up for that. Next week, we're taking a break from Revelation. Next week is the state of the church. So... Uh, come back for that. I encourage you to continue to read. And guys, God bless you. Have a fantastic Sunday. And we'll see you next time. God bless.